Are you out there doing your best to get on with life? Because, as you already know, it's what you make of your life that really counts. And sometimes having a few shortcuts to help you on your way can be very useful. The NLP Matters podcast might just be the toolbox you need to focus your attention, your effort, your drive onto what really does make the difference. Built on the foundation of neuro-linguistic programming, the NLP Matters podcast offers proven recipes you can use to create and sustain your life your way. G'day and welcome to the NLP Matters podcast. I'm your host, Peter Drummond, filling in for Joe Clark as she emerges from her COVID bubble and into actually travelling to run NLP courses around the country. In the last episode, we wrapped up discussing the presuppositions of NLP, the code of conduct or set of beliefs for integrating NLP into our lives. In this week's episode, we begin Season 3 of our NLP Matters podcast, where we start to delve into the totally fascinating workings of the human mind from the perspective of NLP. And we'll be examining things like what NLP has to say about consciousness, the nature of reality, thinking, and communication. And we'll start that conversation today by looking at the NLP model of communication and the role of the senses in perception. So the first thing I want us to focus on is how do we become aware of what is our reality? So here the most important thing that we need to realise is that we have five senses that play an important part. The senses of sight, hearing, touch, smell, and taste. In NLP, we give them their technical names, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory. Now, I'm aware that at the moment, there's some debate around whether there's only five senses. For example, there are some that argue that we should include things like temperature, balance, pain, and body awareness. However, for the purposes of NLP, I just want to focus on the traditional biological senses of sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. So one of the ways we know that there's a reality out there is we sense things outside of ourselves. We see things and we also hear sounds from outside of ourselves and we feel things outside of ourselves and taste things, like if you're having a drink or something to eat, and similarly we can smell things. So for example, if you're drinking coffee or you're having a nice glass of wine, You may be enjoying the sight of the crema of the coffee or the colour of the wine. You can hear the coffee machine extracting liquid from the coffee or the sound of the wine as it's poured into the glass. And you feel the touch of the cup of the glass as you grasp it. And finally, you get the aroma of that drink as you're about to sip it. So we know that there's things around us in our external world because our senses collect information from it. However, our senses on their own are really all that tell us about the object or the experience that is out there. Now, this is a really important point to emphasise. Our senses are the only way we can get access to information about the world that is external to us. Therefore, we cannot simply internalise this external reality. It's impossible. The internal version of the external event 
mediated through our senses is just that, a version or a representation of that external experience, not the experience itself. And the word representation is really interesting in this context. If we look at its structure, it tells us something important. It is a re-presentation. We re-present the external experience internally. All we can do is interpret the external event via the information that these five senses provide to us. Now, there's been a whole lot of work in a whole lot of ranges of academic disciplines like biology, psychology, linguistics, and semiotics that confirm how this works. So in general, how this process of perception works is generally agreed upon across these disciplines and more. One example of this work was the work of German biologist and expert in semiotics, Jakob von Juxel. Now that's spelt Y-U-X-S-K-U-L-L. He coined the term umwelt, which he saw as where an individual turns physical stimuli through our senses into what he calls patterns of neurological excitation which constitute science, or in other words, meaning. So we make meaning from perception. He said two other important things here as well. Firstly, that the whole process is unconscious. And secondly, that the meaning we make from the process appears to us as an objective reality, even though it can't be. So we have no idea we're doing it moment to moment, and we act as if what we perceive is reality, and not just our perception and interpretation of it. So, our senses form the basis of our cognition, our knowing of the world. Our senses collect the information, and then that information is transmitted through our neurons in our brain, then that's transmitted into our sexual nervous system where the information is processed. So really, even though you smell coffee, what you're actually doing is you're translating the aroma of coffee into a set of electrical impulses that are transmitted to your central nervous system. This message, this electrical message, means coffee smell, which is kind of cool. It's an electrical impulse that is being realized in your central nervous system. And that is what tells you that you smell coffee. But our sensory experience of the coffee can never be the actual coffee itself. It's always a mediated experience. That is, it's filtered through something, in this case, our senses. So I have no objective way to know that what I experience as a smell of coffee is the same experience that you have of the coffee smell. In fact, when we look at it a bit closer, by definition, it can't be the same. Now let's have a look at the implications of this thinking for a minute. As humans, we tend to live with some clearly incorrect assumptions or presuppositions about the nature of reality and communication. Firstly, as I said, people live and act as if there is an external reality, a set of experience that happens that we have total access to and that what we perceive is an accurate snap of this external reality, the unwelt. But as I've already suggested, this is in fact impossible. We cannot directly access the external world. It can only be interpreted. That is, we internalise the information or the data from the external world, which then has to be transformed 
or interpreted into some form of meaning. And if this is the case, then it's logical that everyone will interpret this data in slightly different ways. And indeed, this is the case. Merely due to the fact that we can't occupy the same space when we perceive something means it has to be perceived differently by those others who are observing it. So in order for everybody's representation of the external experience to be the same, our senses would have to pick up exactly the same things all the time. You and I would have to notice the same. The same things, hear the same things, feel the same things, taste and smell the same things. Not only that, but our physiology, our physical makeup, would have to be exactly the same as well, because our neurology would need to be identical. There would be absolutely no variation in the physical makeup of any human being. We would need to be clones of each other. And of course, we know this to be obviously not true. Now, we'll delve into the neurological aspect of the NLP model of communication in more detail in an up-and-coming episode, and I highly recommend you listen to that one, because it's just fascinating how we go about making meaning from the world around us. So, we have our neurology, our neural network, or central nervous system, to take the information gleaned from an external experience and turn it into a representation of the world for us. And we can see this really clearly when we look at examples such as people with brain injuries. Let's say that the part of someone's brain that is responsible for interpreting the electrical impulses that interpret sight, they're damaged. In this case, even though the person's eyes are not in any way damaged, they still lose their sense of sight. So remember that whilst we might be sensing something out there in the big wide world, It's not our eyes that actually tell us what we're seeing. The eyes are taking in the information and encoding it into the electrical impulses and transferring it through our central nervous system. And it's so interesting when we look at the mechanics of something like sight. Our images or external stimuli are actually inverted on the retina at the back of our eyes, which is kind of like a screen at the back of our eyes. So the images on the retina are upside down, which is kind of cool when you watch newborn babies, you know, how they're trying to get things with their hand because what they're seeing is upside down compared to what they're feeling. So there's a bit of confusion there because their sense of touch is giving them conflicting information from their eyes. And it takes a little while for the brain or the neurology to flip it. But then we still see everything upside down, but we don't even notice it anymore because our neurology has learned to correct it. And so what we feel is what we see, and we just unconsciously adjust our visual imagery to suit the touch sensation. Now there's experiments that have been done where people wear special glasses that flip the image again to make it look upside down. And that's really interesting, because first of all, you're going around and everything's upside down, but in a relatively short period of time, like in about a week, your neurology learns that. And so then you start to see things right way up again. And when you take the glasses off, it's upside down. So my point here is that we are never seeing things as they are anyway. We only get to see what our senses and our neurology allow us to see. We're taking information in through our senses and we're combining that information to enrich our experience of reality to add detail. 
So for example, we might feel texture, but we might not visually be able to see something yet. And then we'll know when we look at something, we'll know how it feels because we've coded and combined that information from sight and touch together. So the nerve fibres, first of all, absorb the information, convert it to electrical energy and transmit it to the central nervous system. And then we make it into things that we can understand, things we can interpret, things we can learn about. This is the most amazing unconscious process. And it's going on all the time. And we've got absolutely no awareness of it. Cognitively, though, we're using a lot of energy. We do use a lot of energy to do all this automatic processing. So be mindful that a large part of our energy expenditure, if you like, is converting what we're getting through our senses into meaningful messages that we can interpret. We form patterns. For example, we automatically code and recognize the smell of coffee so that when we experience it again, we've already got it categorized. That means it could run more and more automatically. And the more automatically it runs, the less energy it consumes in order to run. So as we build those neural pathways, it becomes more and more automatic. Each of the processes or the actions we're doing, we're expending less and less energy in order to maintain these actions and behaviours, which is kind of cool. We're very efficient. Now, some of this programming, if you like, is inbuilt in the design of human beings. And when we're born, we know that, for instance, the structures of the brain are there. They'll most likely communicate with each other in a certain way. So we know we've got a left hemisphere of the brain and a right hemisphere of the brain. And we know the visual cortex is located at the rear of the brain and so on. So we know that's the blueprint for how cognitive development will occur. Now, sometimes there may be something that interferes with that blueprint. So, for example, I mentioned before someone has a brain injury. They may have a particular component of the brain that is damaged in a way that means it can't fulfill its primary function. Now, 20 or 30 years ago, there was this belief that if you had a brain injury and it wiped out a particular specialist area of the brain, then you lost that function forever. And it was kind of like, oh, well, the most you're going to recover is in the first 12 months. And then there's no point doing much rehab after that. But what we discovered more recently is that, in fact, the brain is very plastic or changeable. And so whilst you might have an area of the brain that sustains some damage, and the function for that area of the brain is lost initially, because the demand is still there for that function to be performed, your neurology can reallocate the real estate. So what that means is your brain might go, you know what? We're going to have to shuffle up and squash up a bit more where we use these functions. Then we're going to subdivide some sections of our neurology so that different parts of the brain can now pick up that function for the area that's been damaged. And so that's why when we're working with people who've sustained a cognitive injury, quite often we'll see them improving, improving for about the first 12 months. And then there may be a drop-off where they actually deteriorate a bit before they then begin to improve even more. And that drop-off period, we think, is where the real estate is being reallocated. So everything is kind of being re-subdivided. And it's just like if you're doing a subdivision in a property, where you go along and you dig everything up, it gets pretty chaotic and messy during that period. So you may see that with some functions, one person may drop a bit before the reallocation occurs. So that's actually one of the most important times 
to continue rehabilitation, which we only learnt fairly recently. So it's very important that with neuroplasticity we recognise we have the capacity to rewire and reallocate within our neurology, which is what NLP has been saying all along. But now we actually have the technology and a better understanding for how it works, so it becomes more credible. So we can now see what an important role our senses play in the way in which we construct our reality. But it's not the full story. Nowhere near it. So please join us in the next NLP Matters episode where we continue our new season looking at the fascinating subject of the human mind and what NLP has to say about consciousness, thinking and communication. And in the next episode, we'll discuss in more detail just how we construct our internal representation of the world. So stay awesome and we look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Wow, thanks for showing up and listening in. We would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts, ideas or questions via email to joanne at destinypursuit.com.au. Now it's time to take today's recipe out into your own life. Notice the differences that show up as you apply it. We'd love to hear how you are progressing with your new approach.